Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. As we continue in our series on the Gospel of Luke. Now there are many things in life that we use that find usefulness, not in what they are, but in what they point to. Think about runway lights at an airport. Now, if you're one of the unfortunate pilots or engineers in the room, I apologize in advance for butchering these details with this illustration. But I did some research and I discovered that there are many different types of lights that pilots use to land at night. There are things called runway end lights, end identifier lights, edge lights, centerline lights, something called a Vasi or poppy light, if I pronounce that correctly, touchdown zone lights, touchdown zone lights, and even an approach lighting system. Each different set of lights are set up in a particular way to point to a specific aspect of the runway. And hey, did I get that right? He's smiling at me. <laughs> so that's what he does for work. Some of these lights flash. Some are different colors. Some are set up in a particular pattern or in a specific location. But they all serve one purpose, to point to the runway. If you were to take those lights and you were to put them in an empty field, they would lose a lot of their value and usefulness because they are meant to point to something else. Now Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he is concerned with certain truths about what happened over 2,000 years ago in history. And many of those truths we see find their beauty in their connection with the Old Testament. If you remember in Luke 2.26, Luke highlights Simeon's prophecy, and he records that it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, what does it mean, though, that he would see the Lord's Christ? This doesn't mean that he would meet someone named Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is not a last name or a surname like Smith is my last name. It's a title. It means anointed or Messiah. And the Lord's Christ was Israel's Messiah, prophesied about throughout the Old Testament, who would bring redemption and consolation for Israel. And Luke has been seeking to show us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord's Christ. But I want us to know that Luke's goal is not just to show us that Jesus was the Messiah, but to show us certain things about what that means for us. And in our passage today, Luke is going to shift and detail the ministry of John the Baptist, but he does so not in order to point to John, but in order to show how John points to truths about the Lord's Christ. John is nothing more than runway lights. I want to look at five sections that I think show different truths. Notice first how the setting points to the reality of Christ's coming. Consider the details Luke gives of the setting in Luke 3, 1 through 2. He writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It's so interesting that he mentions the specific year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. The 15th year is either A.D. 27 or 28, depending on how one dates the beginning of his reign. But Luke also mentions four rulers in over five different regions. Further, he mentions two people in the high priesthood at the time. Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to 16, and Caiaphas from A.D. 18 to 36. But what's unique about this time period is that Annas still exercised significant influence. And we see this as we read John 18, 13 and Acts 4, 6. You see, what Luke is doing is he's setting the ministry of John in a precise historical time period. There's no doubt about when this would happen for Luke's readers. We also see that it's during this precise time in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. I think this phrasing is fascinating and it's very significant. Look at how close it is to the call of the Old Testament prophets. You see how similar it is. The phrasing is almost exactly like the call of Jeremiah, Hosea, and Ezekiel. And I think Luke uses this phrasing to set John's ministry in relationship to the Old Testament prophets. Because you see the scriptures over and over speak of a prophet who would come before the Christ. And so what I see in this opening setting of this narrative for Luke is that he's setting the ministry of John the Baptist in a historical time period and in relation to the Old Testament prophets in order to point to the reality of Christ's coming. You see, he makes it clear that the Lord's Christ came over 2,000 years ago, and he came at a very precise moment in time for a very specific purpose. As we continue in Luke 3, I see that John's message then points to the nature of Christ's work. Luke is the only gospel writer to give the details of what John proclaims in his message. And he does this in Luke 3, 3 through 14. I want you to notice how specific he is. Start with what Luke records in verse 3. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now just pause right now and think on what John's proclamation is. It's a call for baptism, a call for repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. This is not suggesting that baptism or repentance is what provides the forgiveness of sins, but the call to repent and be baptized prepares for the forgiveness of sins. I think we see this in a couple of ways when we look at the text. First, John immediately records in verse 4 
that this is to fulfill the prophetic words of Isaiah of one who would prepare the way of the Lord. So what he's doing is preparation for something to come. And secondly, John specifically mentions that his baptism is inferior to Christ's in verse 16. So you see what Luke is showing us is that John's message is one of preparation, calling for repentance with an eye towards the forgiveness of sins because that's what we need. Notice also what Luke highlights as he quotes Isaiah 40 in verses four through six. Luke writes, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This quote by Luke is very significant for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because the prophecy of Isaiah 40 is a monumental prophecy for Israel. When Israel received this prophecy, Assyria had just fallen, but a prophecy had been made about the coming conquest of the Babylonian Empire of Jerusalem and the destruction and the devastation that will bring. And Isaiah 40 transitions in the book of Isaiah towards prophesying the redemption of Israel and the triumph of Israel's Messiah to come. And Isaiah spends the rest of his book on that prophecy. The opening of Isaiah 40 speaks of a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord, you see, was, Luke, was Israel's Savior. And so Luke is saying, John the Baptist is the voice in the wilderness. And the coming Christ is the Lord. Consider also that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote Isaiah 40 verse 3, Luke is the only one that includes Isaiah 40 verses 4 through 5. Which is what we see in verse 5 and 6. Now I think this inclusion probably points to two themes of great value for Luke in his gospel. The imagery of valleys being filled, mountains made low, the crooked made straight, and rough places level points to the sanctifying work that would come through the Messiah. And all flesh seeing the salvation of God points to the inclusion of all peoples in God's great deliverance. Now the next portion is where it gets interesting. When we pay attention to the details of John's message and his interactions with the crowds, this portion of Luke 3 has honestly shaken me to the core this week. Notice first that in verse 7, Luke writes, and he said, therefore, to the crowds, meaning because he's the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, this is what he says to prepare the way of the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I want to encourage you to pause for a moment and just think on the scene that is taking place. John is in the wilderness, Luke says. This is a desolate area with little appeal to visit. People were going there for one reason, and one reason only, to hear from John. And as crowds of people arrive, he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is not how we would teach most people to evangelize. In fact, many would say we shouldn't speak of the wrath of God against sin at all. After all, our God is a God of love, isn't he? Oh, church, he is a God of great love. He's a God of great love because he made a way for wrath to be appeased. You see, the reality is, this is precisely what everyone needs to understand to see the true beauty of the gospel. Humanity was created by God to bring him glory. We were created to delight in him and to live under his perfect, holy, and righteous and loving rule for our joy. But we strayed, all strayed, all turned their backs on God and denied and rejected his rule. We rejected his goodness and we sought delight in other things. This is the primary definition of sin, a rejection of a holy, good, righteous, perfect, and loving God. There's no way around it. God must punish sin. And the Bible tells us over and over that the wrath of God is stored up against sin and one day it will be poured out. John is not ashamed of this truth because he's not ashamed of what saves us from it. Now, just in case we're tempted to think well, he was speaking to the Jews who needed this warning. Listen to what Paul writes to the Church of Rome, a predominantly non-Jewish congregation in Romans 1, 16 through 18. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul goes on in Romans 1, 2, and 3 to show that that is all of humanity. Did you see the flow of these verses? 
Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the salvation of God. Verse 18, for because the wrath of God is revealed. You see, one of the most important aspects of the good news of the gospel is that we can be saved from the wrath of God against sin because of the forgiveness of sins that is provided through the work of Jesus Christ. We need to hear that. We need to know that that's what the Christ came to do. And John also focuses also on the fruit that comes with repentance in verses 8 through 9. You see, repentance, church, is a turning from our rejection of God to a love of God that desires His ways and loves and enjoys His rule. Verses 10 through 14 then serve to highlight what is meant by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke interestingly records three different people groups' reactions to John's message. They all hear the warning and they say, what should we do? Look at verse 10 with me. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats, or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. You see, I think as we examine each group, what we see is the ways in which our sinful nature desires our own ways and not the ways of the Lord. The crowds are more general. So the call is to be generous with their possessions and not to cling too tightly to what we have the tax collectors and the soldiers had specific temptations to abuse their positions for their own personal gain. And the call of the Lord is to be merciful and just. The fruit of repentance shows a changed heart. So how does John's message, though, point to the nature of Christ's work? Well, he's the way. He's preparing the way. And I think that Luke shows that Christ, the Messiah, was dealing with a far greater need than freedom from any earthly oppression. He was dealing with sin's gripping power on humanity and the wrath to come towards it. John's message points to Christ's primary work being to make a way for true repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the thing we need the most to reconcile people to God and to change their hearts to live for Him. And all of us in here who have experienced the mercy and the grace of God say amen. That's the work He's done in my heart. Now before we move on, I, I need to clarify one really important thing. Church, our security in salvation is never in anything we do. 
Our security is never in anything we do, even the fruit that we see that is in keeping with repentance. Our security and salvation is only in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what makes us know that we are saved. The fruit allows our heart to look back at our lives and say, yes, I am trusting in Christ. Yes, he has done a work in my hearts. You see, forgiveness is not attained with any of our acts, but with Christ's perfect righteousness being substituted for our sin on the cross. Forgiveness is obtained because Christ bore the wrath reserved for us against that sin. And this moves us into the next thing I see that John's ministry concluding points to our need of Christ. Notice the way Luke brings John's ministry to a close in Luke 3, 15 through 20. They begin in verses 15 and 18. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news. To the people. John is preaching good news. Now there's some things that are confusing in these verses, but before I try to answer those, I want to point to the main thing I think Luke is saying. Did you notice the question of the crowds? Is John the Christ? See, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And it's a valid question to ask because of the work that John was doing. But Luke makes it clear that John is not by showing how John himself pointed to the need of someone greater than him and another work that was greater than the work he was doing. John points to his baptism with water being insufficient to save from the wrath of come. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with something else. Now, one question I think we need to try to answer is, what does it mean that Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? One option is that fire symbolizes only a purifying fire that leads to the fruit in keeping with repentance. I think this is possible, but... I lean away from this as being the conclusion because of verse 17, which clearly focuses on fire being judgment. A second option is that there are two different immersions by one act, one into the Holy Spirit for those who respond in faith, and the other into the fire of judgment for those who reject Christ, the Christ ruling over both. Luke will go on to speak of fire several times in his gospel and all references to it refer to a judgment that will come. The third option is that this baptism 
of the Holy Spirit and fire refers to both purification and judgment at the same time. Some being baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire for purification and some being baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire for judgment. The main argument for this is that John mentions only one baptism. I'm currently persuaded of the second option, probably about like 85%, because for the third to work for me, there would have to be some indication from Scripture that the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, is associated with judgment, and I haven't seen one yet. If you have seen one, come and tell me. But either way, whether it's the second or the third, the main point is not lost. John's ministry was insufficient. The work he was doing wasn't the work of salvation. John's ministry pointed to a need for a greater work than what he was doing. But John also points to someone needed that is mightier than him. You see, we needed somebody mightier than John. Jesus says that none is greater than John on earth, but we needed somebody greater. I've heard it said that if Jesus was not the Son of God incarnate, then our sins have not been atoned for. We needed God to take on flesh. The work that needed to be completed was not something that a mere man could complete. Taking all the wrath of God for his people's sins is not something John could do. We needed the Christ. We needed the Son of God. We needed someone greater. And I see this as one reason why Luke brings John's ministry to a close so swiftly and places his arrest where he does. Look really quickly at verses 19 through 21. It says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now I hope as we're learning to study the Bible, you're learning to ask a very necessary question of every gospel text why is this story placed here? Did you notice that we needed to ask that question? Why does Luke record John's arrest before Jesus' baptism, which John would have performed? It's out of chronological order. You see, I believe Luke is intentionally taking the focus off of John showing that his ministry ended when Christ began in order to focus our eyes on the greater person and the work of Jesus Christ, to show us our need of him. And this brings me to the next point of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism points to him being the Christ. Look at Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, 
and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This story is so fascinating. And many have stumbled into dangerous conclusions from this moment in Jesus' life. One of the worst is some who have said this is the moment Jesus was adopted as the Son of God and thus they deny his deity and the incarnation. Others have said this is when Jesus received the Holy Spirit and proves that we don't receive the Spirit until baptism. Church, the text simply doesn't allow these conclusions if we're willing to stay within it. These conclusions come from us imposing our own views upon the text. So what does the baptism of John reveal, Jesus reveal to us? I think there are two vital clues Luke and the other gospel writers provide. First, notice the focus on the Spirit coming in bodily form and the audible nature of the voice from heaven. Both lead towards recognition of what was taking place by others around. The second clue is in the word the Father says. Look at verse 22 again. He says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Both of these statements are strong allusions to the Old Testament. You are my beloved Son is an undisputed connection to Psalm 2 which is a royal messianic song of the coming king. With you I am well pleased is almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 42.1, two chapters after Isaiah 40, right in the thick of the promise of, you guessed it, the coming messianic king. Let me put these side by side on the screen so you can see this. Do you see what the baptism of Jesus is saying. It's shouting from the rooftops, Jesus is the messianic king. This Jesus is the Lord's Christ. And for Luke, this also means that the work we're going to see Jesus do was the work of the Lord's Christ. His death on the cross, his resurrection, the new life that we have in him, church, is the salvation of God that all flesh would see in Isaiah 40. There's one more section to cover before we conclude. It's probably our most fun section in any gospel. I was joking this past week with Holly that I think Steve always gets me to preach the genealogies for some reason. I think Jesus' genealogy points to clarity about the Christ. Look at Luke 3, 23-38. I feel like I can't move at all. What's going on? Anyways. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, 
the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shietiel, the son of Neri, the son of Malchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Amidab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sireg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> I practice that a lot. <laughs> Genealogies can be hard for us to study, and it's not just because the names are extremely hard to pronounce. And when we read genealogies in the Bible, we have this temptation to skim over them or treat them like credits at the end of the movie <laughs> and just walk out of the theater. But I think one of the most helpful things to do when you're studying a genealogy is to ask questions of them and try to answer them. I think there are three questions that Luke's genealogy demands for us to ask. The first is, why does Luke's genealogy differ from Matthew's? We don't have time to place them side by side, but if you look at Luke's genealogy of Jesus and Matthew's, there are two specific confusing differences. Matthew goes from David to Solomon, where Luke goes from David to Nathan. Matthew records Joseph as the son of Jacob, where Luke, the son of Heli. What do we do with these differences? Well, the first and most important, probably initial note, is to point out that the word for son in the text can be used for either son, grandson, or son-in-law. So neither genealogy is required to be a strict father-to-son correlation throughout the genealogy. Now with that in mind, let me give two probable explanations for the differences that we see. One is that Matthew goes from David to Joseph through those who had legal claim to the throne of David if that line had continued. That's why he goes from David to Solomon. And Luke goes from David to Joseph in the particular time to which Joseph finally belonged. 
the son of Jacob or the son of Heli could be grandfather, father, son. The two lines could have easily merged when one of Nathan's descendants became rightful heir to the throne. So that's one explanation for the differences, and I think it's a, a helpful and a probable one. The second option is one I'm most currently persuaded of right now, and it's that Matthew gives Joseph's genealogy and Luke gives Mary's. And this cancels effectively any argument that Jesus wasn't from the Davidic line because of the virgin birth. This is mainly supported by Luke's interesting inclusion of as was supposed when he says the son of Joseph and the fact that the son of Heli could mean the son-in-law. Therefore, Luke traces Mary's line. This seems to be most probable to me as the explanation for the differences. My encouragement is to read and study on your own. You want to be firm in the truth of Scripture? The truth we know is that this is the genealogy of Jesus. But our next two questions that I think we should ask is what I believe points to Luke's purpose with the genealogy. What is the reason for Luke going all the way back to Adam? Again, if you look at Matthew's, Matthew stops with Abraham. Jesus traces all the way back to Adam. And why is it placed here in the gospel? To me, it would seem Luke traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam and places it here to show that Jesus is the son of Adam and the obedient son of God. Notice that what comes immediately next is the temptation in the wilderness. Therefore, what this means is that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and he fulfilled the promise made in the garden of an offspring of Eve that would come and crush the serpent's head. You see, church, Jesus is the victorious offspring of Eve. Jesus is the heir of promise from Abraham. Jesus is the messianic king from David's line. There is no escaping that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord's Christ. What does this all mean for us? I think there are many implications for this passage that we could make. But as Pastor Steve and I were speaking this last week, Luke's main point in most of his stories is simply to show for certain that Jesus is the Messiah. And the work that he did on the cross was the work that needed to be done to redeem God's people. So the primary response of every story in the gospel is to ask yourself, are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have you repented and received the forgiveness of sins? It only comes through the cross of Jesus. There is no greater question to ask, and so there's no other question I will ask this morning. For some in this room, that question is a call to repent now, to turn to Christ and to receive the forgiveness of sins. For others, it's a call to be more certain about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. 
And for many of us, it's a call to continually, faithfully trusting in Christ as the way of salvation, waiting for the hope of everlasting joy in the presence of God forever. Please stand with me and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would make your name hallowed. God, I ask that you would pierce the hearts of everyone in this room to show them the glory of Jesus Christ. For those who do not believe, I pray that you will call them to turn, to see Christ's beauty and glory for the first time, and to receive the forgiveness of sins. For those that are fainting in their faith and their trust of Christ, I pray that you would strengthen that that you would show them who Jesus really was and what Jesus came to do. And for all of us, I pray that you will keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, that you will be our vision, that you will be our delight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.